get there eventually. Get sure the sound works. Okay. Thank you, Chad. That was a great just time of just uh, calming out ourselves, calming our minds and our fears even, and bringing them to God. Uh, just thank you for your prayers and continue to keep doing that. Just grow in confidence that um, you don't need to be uh, very well. You don't need to be like a professional linguist when you speak. You just need to say stuff to God, and God hears it. Um, we, we don't. Uh, you can say short things. You can say long things. Uh, but either way. Uh, it's always about God. Uh, so I just encourage you uh, to keep praying to him. Um, okay, so we're in our book, uh, in the book of Revelation, and we're part three, uh, and this one is called uh, The Throne of God. I've called it The Throne of God, although the two chapters are effectively, leave that way, uh, are effectively about the throne of God. Um, and what we're going to do, I'm not going to read through the, the whole thing at the start. We're going to go through section by section, and I'll explain, hopefully, what this all means. What does all these uh, verses mean? What is it, uh, what's the pictures that are being shown uh, to John in these chapters? So we're going to go through section by section. I think uh, the real, one of the main pieces I really want us to learn here is uh, how we need to center the throne of God, as it were, um, God himself uh, in our lives. So everything we do comes from that faith and belief in him. Uh, um, but when we look around the world, uh, as we see it today, um, that we look at everything through the lens of God on the throne, that God is, has conquered, God has victory uh, today. And what I hope we can learn is that there is comfort in knowing that everything we see in this broken world will one day come to an end, uh, and everything uh, will be completed in God's plan. Uh, that if our hearts and minds are kingdom-looking, that is looking to heaven, looking to God, uh, then we will want both this pain and brokenness to end, but also an urgency for those who do not know him uh, so to come to God. So uh, there, there's a sense of just this urgency that we want people to know that there is a loving God who really welcomes them into the kingdom if they believe in Jesus. I think, I believe, uh, looking at this, I think one of the purposes of these two chapters is to give us a, an assurance that this picture of heaven shows that God is in control. Just despite what you see around you, God is in control. That whatever Jesus does now or next, as we'll see in these verses, is all to show that he's in charge and in control. So we're going to kind of sandwich these, uh, this text, these two chapters, with some other verses. It's always good when you're preaching on uh, teaching Revelation, uh, it's always good to reference other parts of the Bible, not, not to force it in, uh, but so we know we have reference, we have context. Why does Revelation speak of certain things? Because actually most of the time, it's already been written in other books of the Bible. And so we, what we don't get is a skewed version of Revelation, where if we only look in Revelation, we start to panic a little bit because we're seeing quite dramatic terms being thrown about, words being uh, thrown about. So we need to be very careful. So this first one, this is the sort of top end of this, is uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 22. I've got 23 on there, actually, but anyway. It says, for, the reason, uh, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order 
that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of this glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Quick note, and just a spoiler, it's always all about Jesus, all the time, everything, all the time. Uh, And so we start with this verse because we want to have the right mindset as we go into these uh, verses in Revelation. Uh, These verses in Ephesians... I think help us to get this healthy context of what we're going to read in Revelation. Uh, and first, it helps us to know that everything is already placed at the feet of Jesus. That is to say uh, that God gave him, God the Father gave him all authority, and now everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And now he is the head over everything. Secondly, that Jesus is afforded the same worship as God. So we need to be clear that Jesus is God, as Father is God, as Holy Spirit is God. The first song we sang was about what we call the Trinity, which is uh, three persons in one. That is three persons, individuals, but one God. Whole subject to get into, again, if you wanted to know more about that. Uh, But he is God, and so he affords to him the same worship. If this wasn't the case, then God would not allow the Lamb, as it says, to be worshipped in the same way. But we are assured that what we see in Revelation is consistent with what we read in Ephesians. That Jesus seated at the right hand of him who receives the same worship and authority as God. So let's look at our first two verses. Uh, Revelation 4, 1 to 2. And it says this. It says, After this I looked, and there before me, was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Okay, so Jesus is now speaking to John. uh, And what he's doing, he's he's asking John, come, come listen, come here, not only here, but come see uh, what I have to show you. Now, all the imagery we're going to go into is somewhat a, uh, presented to John in a way that he could most likely understand. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it happens in heaven. Uh, but depicted to John are the principles of what, happen, what does happen in heaven. So we've got to be really careful of imagery because imagery can lead us into all sorts of weird stuff if we don't context it right when we read the Bible. So the first important thing to establish is that the vision that John will see is the words that Jesus speaks. Jesus says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place. You may think, how does that work? If it's just a vision, if he's just seeing something presented to him, why does Jesus say, come up here? So I believe this is more than just John being shown something. You remember last week uh, I showed you, I told you that uh, revelation and the, the, the image that it's been shown uh, was like being at a cinema uh, and you had this one chance to see this movie 
and the only thing you could do was see it once and you had to write all the notes down and you could never see the movie again. So that was the principle. Here though, the come up here is quite different and what we're going to see is actually this kind of analogy changes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen these goggles, this is virtual reality and people put them on and you kind of get in, pulled into this world of virtual reality. Uh, you can watch videos and all sorts uh, through it as if you're there, actually there. Um, so what we get in a sense now, just to try and help you to understand where John is, is that he's almost going to feel what's going on. He is going to actually experience what's happening in front of him like he was there. But just like the picture there, John is still on earth. He's still, he's still present in normal human form. But he's going to experience what it's going to be like to be in heaven and in this moment that we're going to look at today. John is what we call in the spirit, taken up <clears throat> in front of a throne. And on that throne is someone sitting before him. And the throne is a central point of these two chapters. This throne is crucial in understanding the place of authority that God is in and the assurance of the throne that is occupied by him. And I believe the reason John sees the throne first is to give him reassurance that God is in charge. In fact, this whole chapter is dedicated to understanding the presence of the throne, its importance uh, of why we're here. So let's read on, uh, verses 3 to 8 in chapter 4. Uh, and the one who sat there uh, had the appearance of jasper and ruby. I'll, uh, a ruby, sorry, I'll explain that. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold, on their heads from the throne came flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder you sang that last song that's where it gets it from okay it pulls it from revelation because it's a revelation song uh, conveniently but in front it says in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing these are the seven spirits of god i'll explain that as well also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were for four living creatures uh, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. Third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Sorry, it's got to be three. It has to be three. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, the song we sang. Uh, I want to thank Dan. Daniel. Dan, by the way, who's not with us today, picks these songs. Uh, and it's, he's so very good at it. And just bless him in that. He's, he's just uh, really good serving us in, that, in the music today. So what does this all mean? The Jasper Stone. What, what's that about? Uh, John um, refers to this as a, a clear jewel. It portrays God's uh, purity and perfection. Um, so these, these are images, these are representations of what's happening. Again, it's not necessarily that in heaven that's what well, actually you will see, but these are representations in order for us to help us understand what is heaven, like what's going to happen, what is Jesus going to be doing. So it's about purity and perfection. The ruby, which is called a carnelian crystal, uh, portrays God as our redeemer. Israel's high priest uh, wore jasper and carnelian and ten other gemstones on his chest. Each of 12 stones represented a tribe in Israel. 
So just as the high priest wore the tribes of Israel symbolically on his chest, so there's lots of pictures around priests of Old Testament times, and they would wear all sorts of things as uh, Ephesians might, you could probably refer to it using Ephesians, talks about the parts, the clothing that the priest wears, the belt, the, the shoes, the sword, maybe the sword is, is more of a, a metaphorical, um, but certainly all the other pieces that he wears, the priest has got quite a lot uh, of stuff that he wears on him to represent and to kind of worship God, as it were. So he wears this on his chest, and the high priest carries us as Christians on his heart today. That is Jesus. Jasper and Carnelian, the ruby, are the first and last gems on the high priest garments as well, which is just this little, lovely little representation of what, the, what happened in the Old Testament, how the priests used to, to be and what they used to wear. But actually, it's using this uh, imagery to show the first and last, that God is the first and last. And it also identifies Jesus as God, as both perfection and our Redeemer. The identities of these 24 elders are unknown, uh, but we would say that 12 of them are the patriarchs of Israel, so that's the Old Testament, uh, and then the 12 apostles, which is in the New Testament. And the idea being is that God is bringing them together, that finally there will be a day when there will be a, uh, what we might say, unification, a unifying of God's people. Uh, and so the, God, the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, as it were, and people of Israel will join with the Christians and then everyone will be worshipping Jesus. So that, that's what we're seeing here. That's the representation of what we're seeing. Um, the number 24, I know there's a lot of facts here, but we have to get through them because there's a lot of stuff in here. Number 24 is associated with the priesthood. It's composed of a multiple of 12. So I need to do some maths. Uh, it takes on some of 12's meaning, which is God's power and authority, as well as perfect foundation. Uh, 24 is also connected with the worship of God at the temple. Numbers in the Bible always have some meaning. Three is the most important one, by the way, I would say. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, three. Really good number. Seven's an interesting number. It's sort of a good number. I'll come on to it. Seven's an interesting number. But it was King David who divided those responsibilities for the music in temple services. They served as priests and the Levites who aided the priests. They divided that into 24 courses. You see, so that this imagery is, is not about what we're actually going to see in heaven. He's helping John to understand from what he knows uh, just to get a picture, an understanding of heaven, of who Jesus is. The Apostle John reports that he saw 24 elders in heaven with white garments representing holiness and with crowns depicting victory and approval from Jesus at his judgment seat. Uh, James 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's the same picture we see here in Revelation. They receive the crown of life. Uh, and so they are rewarded, as it were, for their servant uh, servanthood. The flashes of lightning and thunder uh, may also indicate that God is all-powerful, authoritative, and greatly opposed to sin. The seven burning torches, we'll see seven again come up. Mentioned in this verse, though, uh, probably maybe symbolizes seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that per perhaps connected to the reference John made 
to those seven spirits. Uh, it's mentioned here in Isaiah uh, 11, excuse me, 2 to 3. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom, uh, the spirit of understanding, that's two, the spirit of counsel, uh, three, of might, four, the spirit of knowledge, five, and the fear of the Lord, six, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, seven, I know it's the same, I'll explain that. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he wears with, sorry, what he hears with his ears. The fear of the Lord twice referenced in these verses is two different things. Uh, The first one is the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of of the Lord. So that's to receive. And then he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is to how you behave, how you act out, how you live your life will be in the fear of the Lord. So everything you do is just an awareness of the amaze, uh, the amazing power of God. Okay, so they're not trying to like cheat and cram it in. Uh, it is it is seven uh, elements of the Holy Spirit, if you will. The sea of glass. Now this is a really interesting one. What is the sea of glass? Now possibly this is a representation of what was once water and has now become a sea of glass. In heaven, we we might see that there's no need of cleansing from sin anymore. So no water comes between worshippers and God. Here on earth, as we've read before, the blood of Jesus washes away the sins of all who believe on Jesus as Saviour. John uh, would baptise people in water. What we're saying here is that potentially, because we don't know for sure, but when we look at this, that when it turns from water to a sea of glass, there's no more need for that because actually when we come to Jesus here, we've already been baptized. We've already been uh, made new, as it were. But now we don't need this water now because actually we're, we've come to heaven and now the, the, the price of sin has been paid and now we don't need to be baptized again. Uh, so there's, there's sort of some, uh, I'm not going to say absolutely 100%. Again, this is imagery, but we're kind of just getting a, a glimpse of what it might mean. We see that in 1 John, actually. 1 John 1, verse 9, which is quite helpful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As that has been done on earth, we no longer, as Christians, require a cleansing of sin in heaven. And remember, to get into heaven anyway, you, you kind of have to be sinless through Jesus Christ, right? So there's no way we can get into heaven unless we're already washed and cleaned of sin uh, when we come to believe in him in this time. The four living creatures around God's throne are described as having eyes in front and behind, and apparently they, they probably guard the, God's throne, keep and watch over everything that comes near to his throne. So the central point, what's the central point here, just in these verses, is that I think what's being shown to John is that the throne is the centre of everything. That's the point of our message today, that the throne is the centre of everything that everything around it is there for the purpose of the one who sits on it. Everyone is pointed inward towards the throne. It is worshipped by everything that surrounds it. Four to, sorry, Revelation 4, still 9 to 11 says, uh, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy 
our Lord and God to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So chapter 4 establishes the authority, presence and power of the one who sits on it. What is about to happen in the next chapter and most certainly in chapter 6 as we go through will require require us to keep chapter 4 in our minds and in our view uh, of these things. Central to everything and anything that happens, just like John's focus and attention is being drawn to the throne and the worship of God on the throne, so we should take notice and that we should strive to do the same. So what you're going to hear next next week is some really hard stuff that Jesus is going to do. What is going to be unleashed on the world? But it is to bring people to himself. It is so that he will be glorified. So people know that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. That we try to view everything that goes on around us in our what we call peripheral vision. So we always are seeing things around us. But actually, when we, when we experience things in the world that affect us, that we see that, that the evil things are horrible things, that should not be our central that should not cloud our view of God. You see what I mean? Peripheral view means it's out here. It's out to the side. God should remain in the center of you all the time. Because that's where we're going to get our peace. When we pray, the Bible says, we pray for peace. We're receiving peace from God. And that's what we should be doing. We're trying to say, Lord, it is in your hand. It is in your will. I need, I'm praying for peace right now. I'm praying for peace in my heart of the things I see. Keeping centrally focused on God is absolutely vital. Revelation 5, verse 1 to 4, as we move to the next chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, a seal with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What's this scroll? What is it about? The scroll was sealed seven times over and written on both sides. It's unusual actually in tradition, in, in normal tradition of scrolls in the Old Testament, you'd only write on one side. Uh, it is to symbolize that this is packed full of whatever's written on it, um, on these scrolls. But we think that the scroll seems to symbolize certainly the judgment of God on sin and wickedness. Certainly the seals, as we look into that next week, will show uh, the judgment uh, against sin and wickedness. So it's likely that the scroll in God's right hand contained the official verdicts and sentences against unbelievers on earth. And the number seven symbolizes God's judgment as perfect. The sentences or judgments would have to be carried out before Jesus could inaugurate his kingdom, before it could become, as it were, bring into himself, he would bring into uh, the kingdom into, uh, sorry, the earth into the kingdom. And now if you remember, the verse we topped this message with, we started with, was Ephesians. We don't need to wait as we read this to know who is sitting at the right hand of God. It is so well placed. I love these verses that so connect the jigsaw, that, that give us the picture so what we have a picture now is there is one on the throne, which is God, and he's holding holding the scroll in his right hand. Ephesians 1, verse 20. 
He exerted, we read this, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Quick quiz. Who do you think is going to open the scroll? The answer is Jesus. Sunday school answer. It's always Jesus, okay? The right hand who is, who is next to God the Father, as it were, uh, is Jesus. He is also God. He is in the circle in the throne, the center of the throne. Again, Philippians 2, which is more helpful, uh, 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Where did you read that? That was just in Revelation, right? Everyone is going to bow, no matter where you are, everyone is going to come under Jesus and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing, perfect piece of scripture that fits so well into the picture of Revelation that we're reading. There's so much consistency, there's no inconsistency in the Bible if we, we study the Bible right. There's no contradiction in the Bible. So we should know uh, this before we get to Revelation, that Jesus is the one on the right hand. I see Philippians in these verses as a kind of modern day spoiler. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, you know like when someone tells you, you you might be going to see a new film in the cinema and someone says to you, oh yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that film. Great film. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to see it. Yeah, there's a great twist at the end. What are you doing to me? Why you spoiled the movie for me? There's so many times I've seen this on social media and people just revealing entire storylines of new films and someone clicking on it again. Why did you do that? You're my friend, supposedly, on Facebook and you're revealing to me an entire movie I'm about to go and watch. Uh, but this is kind of like this. Philippians is revealing, is a spoiler. But rightly, it's in the right place. It spoils the ending of Revelation. Uh, it pre- prepares us for what we will read in Revelation. This spoiler is okay. And so it goes on. An angel proclaims a question, making it more of a challenge. Who is worthy to take this scroll and open the seals? And at first it seems there is no one. Nobody on heaven or earth has both the moral authority and the legal right to take up the judgment of God. And in response to what appears to be a hopeless situation, John begins to weep. Why does John weep? Because he's just been told. He's been shown the throne of God. It's okay. God's on the throne. Heaven isn't in chaos. It isn't in disorder. Heaven is running perfectly fine. So why is John weeping? There's probably a few, a few theory, uh, theories around this. And we can look at it like John was worried, maybe in some despair about the lack of any person who could open the scroll. Or it could be that he's fearful of what was to come next and maybe that it wouldn't happen. It could be that he knows the judgments that are coming are coming through the seals, and as soon as Jesus begins to release those seals, those judgments will begin. Maybe it's a combination of all three. We need to still be aware of this example, though, that remember John is on earth. So everything he sees is in the response to still a person seeing something that is otherworldly. So he's going to have a different response to those that are actually sitting in heaven and looking at this. The elders are not going to weep. No one who's worshipping God is going to be weeping. But John, I think, because he's on earth, he has this kind of very human reaction to what he's seeing. It's clear that we are reminded that this vision 
is not only seen but felt by him. It's also clear that, we're, that he is reminded that there is no one uh, who, there is only one who can break the seals. It goes on, verse 5 to 7, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David, Jesus, has triumphed, he's won. He's able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. That's, that's Jesus who has been tortured on the cross uh, and now he, he, they see he's, he's been slain, as it were. It says that, but he is, he is alive because he's risen. The lamb had seven horns, it says, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Verse 7 says he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Another spoiler, Jesus has won. Jesus has victory. The one who has victory is the one who can open or break the seals. Jesus is the lamb, it says, who has taken away the sins of the world. John 1 verse 29. Another spoiler, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is not uh, new information in Revelation in that sense. All these things have already been established of who Jesus is. We just need to be able to look back and find them. And where does Jesus stand in this moment? He stands at the center of the throne in the only place that only God is allowed to stand or to sit where only the holy of holy can be, surrounded by the same creatures and elders. And what does Jesus do? He takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the only one who is worthy to take it, the only one who can stand in the center of it. We continue verse 8 to 11. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 hours fell down before the lamb. That's exactly what they did before, remember? It's the same worship. It's not different worship. They're now worshipping Jesus just like they worship God the Father. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they, were, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with, a, your, with your blood, you purchased for God uh, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times, 10,000, lots of maths. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Harps were played at feasts and celebrations in the ancient world and their music delighted all who attended those events Music will fill the courts of heaven as well as attendees worship the Lamb. There's nothing boring or drab about heaven. The elders also held a golden bowl of incense. And John informs us that the bowls of incense are the prayers of God's people. In Old Testament times, uh, Israel priests burned incense in the temple. The fragrance from the burning incense symbolized the prayers of God's people. In Psalm uh, 141, verse 2, which I don't think I have, David wrote, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. This request to God is always appropriate. They sang that the lamb is deserving of the right to take the scroll and open its seals because he was slain and his blood provided a ransom for people everywhere on earth. We continue. 
in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Isn't it interesting? That's where we get it from, isn't it? When we say forever and ever, we say amen, don't we? This is where it comes from. This is the praise forever and ever. Wow, to eternity. Amen indeed, we should agree. This stuff, all this is going to be important as we continue through Revelation 6 and 7. Because what is unleashed on the earth is judgment. The heaven will continue to worship the one who breaks the seals in these judgments. Both chapters 4 and 5 are to focus us, as it did for John, to see that God had already has victory over whatever is coming next. That we need to be assured that just as John was, that whatever we see unfold or happen, we need to have confidence in the one who has all authority and all power. The weapons we need uh, in these times and the coming times are not the same as the ones used by the world. But we are to focus our attention on a worship of a holy God. That is the only weapon that will be effective as we live in this world and we see the plan of God unfold. So I said to you that there's a verse that we're going to sandwich this and probably every week we'll do that. There's the same verse we're going to end with every week because it's so relevant to how we must see through the things that will happen to us during this time and the things that will that are coming towards us. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 3 to 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So that says we're different. So when you become a Christian, you don't operate like the world operates. Let me be clear. That doesn't make you perfect. doesn't make me perfect. It doesn't mean we don't sin. The difference is that we have had our eyes opened to that sin, that now what we do is when it happens, we go, I don't want to do that anymore. And that for the rest of our lives will be the case. We will keep seeking God and saying, God, I've done this, but I don't want to keep doing that. I want to go grow better. I want to be, want to be more Christ-like. I want, to, I want to know what it is to be the person that you want me to be. Let me be clear that we are not perfect even as believers we can be hypocrites just like everyone else, but now we have a revelation that Jesus can take away sin as we ask and pray to him, Lord, forgive me. It says the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. <clears throat> Do you know what it's talking about here? The verses we've been talking about, worship. That's the weapons. The weapons are worship. It is not your political agenda. It is not my political agenda. It is not my personal agenda. It is not your personal agenda. It is not your moral right. It is not my moral right. It is worship of God. Those are the things that demolish the strongholds of the world. It goes on verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean? The same thing again. 
in the moment that we are thinking things and, and potentially contemplating things we should not be doing, Lord, I'm going to give you this thought. I want to hold it captive. Take it captive and change it. I want you to not, to, to help me to not do that. I want you to help me not carry out the temptation that I've been tempted with. That's taking thoughts captive. It's not allowing your mind just to go on and on because it will. And it does, doesn't it? My goodness. Uh, you can sit here or anywhere and through this whole time, there'll be other things you'll be thinking about, right? I'm not, I'm not telling you off for that, by the way. You're allowed to think other things whilst you're here. But when you're in these sorts of places, some other things start creeping into your head, don't they? Take every thought captive. Hold it to Jesus. Lord, I want to be obedient. Let's pray. And then we'll have worship. Then we'll go to communion and then worship one last time in song. Let us pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that <clears throat> despite the, the, the strong, colourful imagery, uh, some of it is just amazing to see just worshipping you and others that we'll see which will be so frightening to see of the judgment that we're all under, Lord. Uh, even as Christians, we are to be judged on the final day. But Lord, uh, I pray that we will understand that it is not us that can make it right. But when I say this carefully, simply, it is to have Jesus as our representative. That I cannot stand in front of a holy God and say, aren't I great? Aren't I good? Oh Lord, the revelation of Jesus Christ who died on a cross, who, who gave his life for sin, is a representation that we are just not good people. And yet, Lord, through Jesus Christ, we are welcomed. We can come into the kingdom of God. We can say, Lord, I'm not just sorry. I want to change my life. I don't want my life to be like this anymore. I want to have eternity with you. Lord, help us to focus our attention constantly on you, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we will see a growing determination to want to serve you more in whatever that is, Lord, however you want us to serve you. Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit and show us the way we must keep going, who we must speak to, who, how we must live our own lives. Lord, that we admit we are just a mess like everyone else. But, oh, Lord, we're not saved by Jesus because we make such a fantastic, great choice. We're saved because Jesus did it. Jesus paid the price. And, Lord, all you asked was that do you trust and believe because that, that is the only thing that stands between heaven and hell. Oh Lord, I pray that we'll continue to seek you. Continue to ask you questions of this world, of this place. But we want to praise your name, Lord, now and say, Lord, we want to put you on a throne, as it were, in our hearts. That you're already on the throne, but Lord, for us, sometimes we just maybe nudge you aside. So Lord, we want to worship now and come to communion. Praise your name today, Lord. We praise you. Amen.